The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So God, we're coming again. Another Sunday morning and doing something that most people would think is crazy. We're asking you through this centuries-old story, through this book, through the very words you've written to us, to open our eyes by your Spirit and to actually change us from the inside out. God, we want to see you. We want to see who you are in the story. We want to see who we are. We want to see your tender care for us. We want to see your justice and your holiness. So God, would you come now and like you've done so many times, meet us in your word and by your spirit and do miracles in our heart and among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the first verse of chapter 18 says this. It says, God appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat by the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And in this, this narrative that we've been looking at, verses like that are sometimes easy to overlook or sometimes easy to, to pass by. But as I read this, this verse over and over again this week, I thought, this is almost unbelievable. This almost is too hard to believe, except that it's in the Bible. You might say, why is it hard to believe, <laughs> Dave? And here's why it's hard to believe. We have a God who wants to be with us. We have a God who, who dwells with us, who eats with us, who, who wants to spend time with us. Our God, the God who sent His Son into the world, into our sinful mess of a world, is the only God of any religion that wants to be with His people like this. You will not find another God like Him in any religion. The only God who doesn't stand far off and make demands of his people to earn his favor and to make his name great on the backs of their works. We have a God that draws near to make promises to work for our good and for his glory. This is amazing. God was with man and woman in the garden, right? I've said that Genesis 3.8 is one of the saddest verses in the Bible when they distance themselves from God. They, they walk out of fellowship with God. God is with Abraham, right? You remember, he's, he's walked with him through the land, shown him the promises. He's showed up over and over again. God is going to be with his people, if you trace this story, in the tabernacle and in the temple to dwell with them in his presence. Jesus comes, and what does his name mean? Emmanuel, what does it mean? God with us. <laughs> There's no other God like that. God with us to be the new temple where people can meet with God. He comes to live the life we couldn't live, die the death we deserve to die, rise again to bring us new eternal life. So what? So that we can be with Him forever. God is with us now in the Holy Spirit. He dwells inside of us so that we are not orphans until what? Until the day we go to be with God forever, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So what we've seen from Abraham is, is a real but very 
imperfect faith. It's real, but it's imperfect. Next week we're going to see that Lot's faith is real, barely, (laughs) but very imperfect, right? And so we've seen doubt in self-preservation. We've seen stumbles. We've seen complete messes made from moments of unbelief. And yet the faith is real. And what this whole story is showing us is that in light of all of it, in the midst of all of that, God still pursues him. God still shows up to keep his promises. God keeps coming back and saying, it doesn't depend on you. It depends on me and my promises and my power and my pursuing you with goodness and mercy all the days of your life. As we follow the story of redemption, we should not lose sight of the reality that God keeps drawing near to his people in all of their imperfections to remind them of his promises and patiently fellowship with them. There is no other God like that. I I wonder this week in my own heart and, and for the sake of your own hearts, when you open the Bible in the morning, when you go to God in prayer, when we gather amongst ourselves as a people, do we believe God wants to be with us? When we draw near to Him, He draws near to us. Do we believe that as we're singing the songs this morning, that our God is rejoicing over us? with loud singing. So look for that as we continue to walk through Genesis as God who wants to be with His people for their good and His glory. Alright, point number one, there's this meal of promise through incarnation. So Abraham is at his favorite settling spot. It keeps showing up, the Oaks of Mamre, and he's on a hot day hanging out in his tent. Right, I was just imagining last week in 90 degree weather in my backyard watching kids running the sprinkler and just trying to stay cool. <laughs> That's what Abraham's doing in this place. And the Lord, Yahweh, uses his name here, appears to him. It says he looked up and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Right? This, this sneaky entrance probably has to do with the fact that it's God. And a couple of angels. We'll find out later. It reminds us of the time Jesus appears to the disciples when they're they're hiding in a room after his death, right? And all of a sudden, he appears to them. He, He sneaks up on them. Abraham immediately recognizes something great about them, and we can tell that by how he responds, right? It says he runs to them, right? It's a hot day, he's been trying to keep cool, and now he's running. He's running to them because he knows who it is. He runs to them and he bows himself down before them, which we've seen him do several times when the Lord is speaking to him. And what does he do? What, what does he do? I think this is a, a profound thing. He says, please don't pass by. Would you stay a while? Would you just stay with me? Would you be here with us? I'll get you some water. You can rest in the shade. You can eat some food, but would you be here? His exact words are, if I have found favor, do not pass by since you have come to your servant. He's saying, stay a while. Let me show you hospitality. Let us fellowship together. Let's be together. And by the grace of God, they stay. God stays with him. This is amazing. The inference here is, yes, 
you have found favor. (laughs) Yes, I want to be with you. Yes, I'd like to spend some time with you. So while Abraham is, is honoring the Lord, he knows he's the servant, the Lord in this moment is honoring him and showing his kindness to him, showing, yes, I want to be with you. Kids, don't you love it when your parents want to spend time with you? Just want to be with you, right? Don't you love it like last week at VBS for some of you when your teachers wanted to be with you? They asked you questions, right? They wanted to know about you. They wanted to spend time with you. Well, adults are no different. When someone we look up to and care about wants to be with us, it means a lot to us. It means a lot to us. And no one is more important than God. And this is a picture. If we trust in Jesus, if we trust in these promises, He will do whatever it takes to spend time with us now and forever. The story of the Bible is God with us, God pursuing His people. And in verses 6 to 8, we see Abraham run and outdo himself with the promise he made. He prepares a feast really worthy of a, a king here. And this is how it works, I think, when faith is real. Right? In the moments when reality is kind of most clear, when we remember and know that we are always in the presence of God, what do we want to do? We just want to live humble lives, be with Him and honor Him, right? I mean, if, if, we, if Jesus was just sitting here physically right now, what, what would you do? Right? But, but He's here. Jesus is here, and so this moment is an expression of the heart of faith when it's living most in touch with reality, when it's living most in touch with God's presence being real, God himself being real, God being with us, the heart that thinks God is here, God is with me, goes, I just want him to stay, I just want to be with him, and I just want to do whatever I can to honor him. That's what he's worthy of. And so this is humble life to glorify God in his presence, right? This was no chore. Abraham wasn't like, do I have to get him food? Why did God stop by? It's hot, right? (laughs) There was no chore to give generously to God who had given him everything. It was a great joy to spend this hot afternoon enjoying the presence of his God. And when our minds are most in tune with reality— And we remember He's with us. We live to enjoy His presence and to honor Him. And those aren't two different things. Those aren't two different things, to enjoy His presence and to to honor Him. They sit and they eat together. Again, this is an amazing thing. Right? My son, one of my sons asked me the other day, there's some backstory to this, but you'll probably laugh anyways, right? He said to me, if you could choose, would you rather have a meal or meat Steph Curry or Matt Chandler? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I don't know who I'd rather meet. But can you imagine eating a meal with God? Can you imagine that? Eating a meal with God, that, that God shows up and they sit and they eat together. And what do they actually talk about? We're going to get to this in the next section, but what do they actually talk about? God reminds him of his promises. Can you imagine sitting with the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? And he's like, I'm, I'm mainly here just to remind you 
all the good I'm going to do. I'm mainly here just to, to show up. Remember, my promise is that you're going to be with me forever. So I thought, well, maybe a good way to show that is if I show up and I'm with him. And I eat with him and I drink with him. Right? He has made some big promises to Abraham, a people and a place to enjoy his presence now and forever. He's made the promises by his own power. You remember chapter 15, he's the one that walked through the cut animals saying, if I don't keep this promise, let it be to me this way. God made that promise. And Abraham has confirmed his faith by circumcising all the males at the end of chapter 17. So God shows up to eat with him and remind with him, I'm still here. I'm going to be with you forever. I enjoy being with you. And what's amazing is we actually see throughout the Bible a God who shows up to eat and drink with his people pretty often. Right? He gives his people who are embodied souls, we live these lives, our souls, in these bodies, these physical things. He gives these embodied souls physical moments of reminder of who he is by eating with them and showing them that he's the only one that can satisfy their hungry souls. And so we see God show up here to eat and drink with his people. We see God call his people to eat a Passover meal in his presence, right? In the the Exodus, as they're coming out from Egypt, he says, eat, Remember me as I pass over. We see God show up in the sacrificial system and have his people eat some of the sacrifices in his presence as if to say, remember me, eat with me, drink with me. We see Jesus show up and transform the Passover meal into a meal with his people to remember his broken body and shed blood for sins. And we see that one day soon we'll be invited into the marriage supper of the Lamb to eat and drink in his presence when he makes all things new. Right? When, when God shows up to eat, he's showing up to say, remember my promise. Remember what I'm about to do. Remember our relationship. Remember that I'm with you. There is nothing more fundamental to the human existence than eating and drinking. You, just, you have to eat. You have to drink. And God shows up time and time again at meals with his people to fellowship with them while he reminds them he's working for them and will be with them until all of his promises come true, right? That's what he does here. He says, remember the promises? Remember, I'm gonna, and I'm going to do it in a year, right? So, so just keep trusting me. That's why I'm here, to, to remind you. What does Jesus do at the last supper, right? He says, hey, this meal is to remember me until when? Until I come again. This is what God's doing. He's giving his people a place, a memory, a time to go, he's coming. He's going to keep his promises. So I'll say it again. When you open your Bibles in the morning to read or begin to pray, do you believe that God wants to be with you? When you take communion later this morning, do you believe that God wants to fellowship with you to remind you of his promises? When we sing, do you believe that he rejoices over us with loud singing? So here we see God incarnate sitting with his servant, later called his friend, Abraham, spending time with him to remind him, I'm with you, I'm all powerful, I'm going to keep my promises. That's point number one. Isn't that amazing to have a God like that? Point number two, this message of promise through inquisition. So then in his mercy... God delivers the message of his promises through this kind of questioning of Abraham Abraham and Sarah that move really from kind of benign questions to 
penetrating questions. We've seen God do this before, right? In the garden, when Adam and Eve were hiding from him, he asks them, right, where are you? Right, God knows where they are. He created the world. Their little disguises are not fooling him. And so he says, where are you? Why is he doing that? To draw them out. Right, we saw it with Cain and Abel. Right, where's your brother? He knows where he is. Right? He, he's drawing them out. And we see it here again. He starts pretty benignly. Hey, where is Sarah, your wife? And Abraham tells them she's in the tent, which we find out later is behind the men. And the Lord gets very specific about his promise here. He's building the case. And he wants Abraham and Sarah to hear it. He says, remember that promise I made to you about an offspring? That's going to happen next year. Right? Can you imagine how long has it been? (laughs) 24 years, 25 years, something like that. And finally, that's going to happen. Sarah is going to have a son Uh, This reminds us of the announcement to Mary in the Gospels that she would have a son even though what? She was a virgin. Right? Sarah's going to have a son. She's well beyond childbearing years. Mary, you're going to have a son even though you're a virgin. God, what we'll see throughout this story, we'll see this theme of barrenness keep coming up in Genesis. God likes to keep this offspring promise from beginning to end, from Isaac to Jesus, in the most impossible ways to show that it depends on him and not on human strategy or cleverness. So at every step of the way, it just looks impossible. (laughs) What, Sarah? Right? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God says, no, Sarah. The angel shows up to Mary. You're going to have a son, Emmanuel. And she's going, that's not possible. How is that going to happen? So God wants to show off his power. And it seems impossible to Sarah, who I think needs to go through a faith-building episode of her own, like Abraham did in chapter 17. Verse 11 notes for us, just in case it wasn't clear, Abraham and Sarah were old. Advanced in years, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So we just get very clearly here, Sarah is not a physical anomaly. Right? The Bible is just making that as clear as it can. God will have to do a miracle. And like I said last week, not many baby dedications with 100-year-old parents. Right? That's where we are in the story right now. And in verse 12, not yet ready to trust that promise completely, Sarah laughs to herself, just like Abraham in the last chapter, and says, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Verses 13 to 14, God responds. He says, so remember, God can't see Sarah. can't even see her reaction. She's behind him in the tent. But God can see Sarah, right? (laughs) And God can see us, and he can see into our hearts. She's saying this to herself. Out of sight, she thinks out of mind, but not in God's mind. So the Lord says to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? God, matter-of-factly and kindly, repeats His promise about her having a son in a year. He says, I see what's going on here in Sarah's heart. She's having trouble trusting. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then Sarah denies that she laughed out of fear. Uh, But God lets her know. I love the way Pastor David read it. (laughs) No, but you did laugh. 
he knows. Right? She's the second person to doubt and laugh. And when her son comes and they name him Isaac, all of this laughter of doubt between Abraham and Sarah will be turned to laughter of joy as God has the last laugh and keeps his promise. So it's going to happen. And here's what I want you to see. These, these questions from God to Abraham to Sarah are a loving inquisition to draw out Sarah's unbelief. A loving inquisition to draw out Sarah's unbelief. In fact, I think these 25 years of waiting are a loving God making them wait until they can really trust him. Sarah laughed at the thought of a child, but God says, that's not really the issue. Right? Isn't it easy in life, in, in your life, in my life, to have circumstances come and struggles come, right? Like, Maybe you just have a, a marriage that's so deeply broken, it's been broken forever, that you're just, you're just having a hard time trusting God. Or you've got a, a wayward child that's just not coming back, and you're having a hard time trusting God. Or you've got a, a financial situation, you've got uh, intractable pain for years, or someone you loved has died. Like, it's just really hard. And what makes more sense in the world than anything is to doubt, right? Just doesn't make sense in the world I know to keep trusting God. And that's what God's getting at. He's saying, well, Sarah, you think, you think you're laughing because what you know in this natural world, it doesn't work what I'm saying. But I'm telling you that you can't even see that you've got a bigger heart issue, which is trust in me. He's going after her heart here. He's saying, here's the impossible. Here's your God. The issue isn't really this, it's that you don't trust this. So you don't trust your, your God with this. It's a loving inquisition. God says, what you're really laughing at or doubting is my power. Is anything too hard for me? And this is what happens. See, this meal is great, and the fellowship's great, and I talked about it, and I love it, and it's awesome. Right? I felt really warm and fuzzy in the first point. But here's what happens when God is with us, when God is with us, he will not leave us the same as we are. But he's always working to lovingly expose disbelief and remind us of his promises and his power. He's always working in us to expose just where we're not trusting in him so that we can see it and then lean in to trust again. This is the kind of question that's at the bottom of most impossible situations. And maybe this morning you just feel stuck in your suffering. You're just stuck. Don't know how to get out of it. Don't know when it's going to end. You feel stuck in your sin. Right? You just think in your mind, it's just been too long. You can't make it anymore. I can't believe it could ever change. I can't believe God could sustain me through it. I can't believe God could help me in it. And so the question is not, what makes the most sense naturally? That's not the question. Can you logically work your way through things? The question is, is anything too hard for the Lord? And that's a hard question to answer sometimes. <laughs> it's a hard question to answer in the moments of brokenness and doubt and fear. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What do you believe? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about His promises and His power? What do I believe about God? Think of the lengths He's gone to pursue you and bring you to Himself. Think of Him sending His Son, Jesus, to die for your sins. 
Will He not finish the work in you He started and keep all of His promises that find their yes in Jesus? And here's what I love about this picture. We keep seeing it in Genesis. The Lord knows our hearts. (laughs) So you think you're hiding something from Him. You think you're behind Him in the tent just talking to yourself. No one can see or hear. No one really knows. You give people the Sunday school answer when they ask you, like, how are you? I'm great, right? When there's all these doubts and fears churning inside of you, the Lord hears. Right? The Lord hears our laughter. He hears our scoffing. He hears our pained cries of doubt and frustration. And what does He do in those moments? He draws near to be with His people and remind them, I'm here. It's not up to you to keep my promises. It's up to me to keep my promises. And right now, this impossible place you find yourself in is not a detour or a distraction. It's exactly what is meant to cause you to depend on me and trust in me. God hasn't lost control. God isn't off His throne. Is anything too hard for the Lord? So where are you struggling today to trust Him? Where are you struggling to depend on Him? Where are you stuck and frustrated and doubting Him? Here's a prayer I often pray, and I I just invite you to pray it this morning. Would you pray even in this moment, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe nothing's too hard for You. Help my unbelief where I'm not quite applying it in my life. God often works in unexpected ways and in His own timing to make us depend on Him. And even this is a gift because in those moments we get more of His presence as we lean in by faith and what could we want more than more of God? What could be better than more of God? Point number three, the mercy of patience through intercession. So Abraham is with God, enjoying His presence and promises and power. This confrontation happens with Sarah. The promise is renewed. And we find out then in verses 16 to 33 that the Lord is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, the evil cities that Lot had settled in in his selfishness. And he's going to destroy them because it says in verse 20, the outcry against them is great and their sin is very grave. And next week, Uh, Rick Shank is going to unpack that for us. We're going to get to see just like a a taste of the the greatness of the sin and the graveness of the sin. But it is great and it is grave. And God decides to tell Abraham about what he is going to do because Abraham will become a great nation. So what does that mean? I've got to tell him he's going to become a great nation. And he means he's going to need to tell all the people of that nation (laughs) to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. In other words, God is going to tell Abraham what he's going to do so that Abraham can understand what happens when people blatantly ignore God and participate in a high-handed, selfish, wicked, and unjust sin that disregards God and has no desire to repent. Abraham's going to tell this story as a testimony to his people. Don't, Don't go there. Return to the Lord. Repent. Don't go there, right? And throughout the rest of the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah will be what? A warning. A warning on the lips of God's people. A warning even on the lips of Jesus to say, don't go there. Don't become like them. Don't become hard-hearted and unrepentant and turning away from God. Don't go there. 
the story's been passed down over and over again, and it's for us too. It's for us too, not just outside, but in the church. Don't go there. Repent. Turn to the Lord. So next week we'll see how great the sin was and how grave it was. But for now, let's just look at how Abraham responds to the news, because that's really what we have in the rest of this chapter. And the way Abraham responds to the news is he pleads for mercy from God and appeals to God's character as he does it. So he says to God, Surely you will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. In his mind, probably he's thinking, Lot. Some other people are there. That I know them. They're, they're good folks. Are you certainly not going to sweep them away with all these wicked folks? And then Abraham goes through this back and forth with God in verses 16 to 33 about sparing the city for only 50 people, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, right? He gets all the way down to 10 people in this back and forth with God. And I think what we get to see here in this exchange is the beauty of what humble, reverent, bold intercession looks like from a heart of faith. Say it again. Humble, reverent, bold intercession looks like from a heart of faith and from the heart of someone that's been with God and been a recipient of the mercy of God. Abraham is reverent. Right? He knows he is pleading with the Lord Almighty. And he's humble, pleading for mercy for himself as he continues to press in. Lord, please don't be angry. I'm going to ask one more time. <laughs> please don't be angry. I'm going to ask one more time. But he's also bold in his intercession. He just keeps pressing. Why does Abraham feel he can plead for mercy from God for foolish, sinful people? or righteous, imperfect people. I think it's because he's been with a God who has showed him mercy. Right? He, he must know something of the character of God is merciful to plead for mercy. He's seen God pour out mercy and preserving power on his behalf and cause him to believe. It's gone. I, was, I was an idol worshiper. And you came, and, and you caused me to believe, and you've, you've been with me in my ups and downs. Surely you can do this for other people. Surely you can, you can help other people, right? Isn't this kind of the opposite of the heart of, of Jonah that we see? Who's like, man, they're so wicked, they're not like me. I'm awesome, destroy them. And Abraham says, no, would you be merciful? Would you find it in your character to be merciful to them? Abraham has seen the power of God in mighty ways. He's seen the mercy of God in mighty ways, and he's experienced God's saving, merciful, preserving power firsthand in his life. He has been changed and marked by mercy. Ask yourself that question. If you look at just how you think and how you process and how you live and how you interact when sins are committed against you and things aren't going your way when you, when you don't like what's going on, are you someone marked by mercy? Like, are you like, I've received so much mercy. How can I not be merciful? Right? We see, we see him startled by the power and mercy of God in his own life and pleading for it in the lives of others. And we should note that although Sodom and Gomorrah do not repent, right, our pleading doesn't always lead to others' repentance. Our intercession doesn't always lead to heart change. But even though Sodom and Gomorrah do not repent, God does not wipe away the righteous and the unrighteous together, but preserves those who imperfectly walk by faith. We'll be more on that next week. 
But here we see God's merciful patience in response to the prayers of his imperfect people. Don't you want to pray like this for those around you? Don't you want to pray like this for your, for your neighbors? Don't you want to pray like this for those wandering away from God? Don't you want to plead for the mercy that you've received? Which leads me to this application. A people with God pleading for mercy for the world. So God is always working. He's always doing the impossible. All the time. Even when we don't see it, right? He's working. We sing that all the time. And many thought, for example, this is just one example of what God's doing, but many thought Roe versus Wade was impossible to change. This will never change. I can remember prayer groups I was in 15 years ago praying for this. Right, just, and so I just wonder how many prayers have gone up, how many intercessions have gone up for just mercy to come. And in God's mercy, he changed that on Friday. Right, he, he, he changed that, that court verdict. And so my question for us as a people is, how do we respond as a church to a sin-soaked culture we live in? Like, how do we respond? What would this passage teach us? Sodom and Gomorrah was a sin-soaked culture where there was shameless sin that was celebrated with sexual sin and oppression crying out to God because of its seriousness. And we live in a culture where shame for sin is largely gone and it is instead celebrated as a personal choice. That's where we, that's where we live. If you think America is way worse than anything that's ever been, you've you got to read some history. <laughs> you've got to read some history. Right? It, it, it's been bad. Babies have been on the, on the altar of selfish desires for centuries and centuries and centuries in all sorts of cultures and all sorts of places, legalized by all sorts of governments. It is ugly and it's horrible. And we live in a culture where that's celebrated. Right? And even though this, this law has been overturned, we just have to confess this is still the mindset of many, not only in the cause of the unborn, but now in the cause of the elderly. Right? If you've if you're unborn or you're elderly, you, you don't really matter anymore. This is still the case with ever-increasing confusion and chaos around gender and sexuality. Right? It's okay for us to lament and say, it's crazy out there. It's crazy out there. The message of all of that is what? What's that all driven by? Right? Instant gratification. My happiness right now in this moment, right? My self-expression, my self-desire, my right, one-click ability to do whatever I want in this world and completely disregard God. And we should lament those things and celebrate where God's law, God's righteousness accords with our laws. That's a good thing. We should celebrate that. And my hope for us is that we as a people are a people that are with God <laughs> with him day by day and pleading for mercy for the world in prayer and in a loving witness. Here's what I mean by that. I want us to be a people that's with God. Like, I, I want you to be with God. <laughs> I want you to lean in. Like, you have 24-7 access to the God of the universe. You do. Like, you have a Bible with so much to tell you about who he is and what he's done. You can talk to the God of the universe like in this chapter whenever you want to 
Because of Jesus, right? You can, you can go boldly like Abraham went. And how many of you, if you're honest, read more blogs and spend more time on social media and listening to all that stuff than you do with God? I'm not, I'm not trying to shame you. Shaming will not work. It'll work for a half hour. I'm trying to invite you to this feast. Trying to invite you to be with your God. To like soak yourself in God. Like just be saturated in who He is and what He's done and how for you He is and what is right and what's wrong and not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind with Him. And to be with God when you're with Him will mean that you will get to a point where you can't compromise the gospel or truth. You can't. <laughs> you love Him too much. He's too good. He's too big. Right? We know We know God's ways are the most loving thing we can hold up to our culture. We know His ways will lead to His glory and the good flourishing of the places we call home. We need to be anchored in His truth. Sitting with Him, talking with Him, eating with Him, drinking with Him. We know we're sojourners on our way home and citizens of heaven. We submit to all He says and we ask for grace to follow Him ourselves amidst our own doubt and fear. We search our own hearts for sin. We confess it and we seek to live lives of imperfect faith with our God. And if we're people with God, we have to live in light of the Gospel. Right? The Gospel isn't something we graduate from. Right? The Gospel that saved us while we were yet what? Sinners. And so to be a people with God means to be people constantly reminded of His self-giving love, constantly reminded that He saved us from our sins by pursuing us with goodness and mercy all the days of our lives, even the days before we trusted Him. It means that He keeps showing up in mercy and kindness when our faith falters and we flounder or fail, and that life drenched in mercy makes us merciful. That, that's the point of the parable Jesus tells, right? You can't receive the mercy of God, like the mercy that's like being forgiven a debt of a billion dollars, and they'll go choke the person over there that we think owes us five dollars. Right? That, like that's the point. The point isn't if you're not merciful, you lose your salvation. The point is, man, if you've received this mercy, if like you get even a fraction of how big and how wide and how deep this mercy is, how, how much you've been saved by, oh my goodness, how can you not extend mercy? Right? To, to people in this church that disagree with you and to the world out there that has no idea yet. You can't see. And so we speak the truth in love. We cling to the gospel that has saved us and we pray and plead for mercy for those who can't yet see the coming judgment if they don't repent. Right? Sodom and Gomorrah is a picture of our world. Abraham's saying, save them. Save them. They, they don't know that the angels are coming. They don't know that the Lord is about to show up and destroy it all. They don't know that right, righteous Judgment is coming. Just holy judgment is coming. They can't see it. Please, Lord, mercy. Please, Lord, show them. Please, Lord, open their eyes. Please, Lord, do for them what you did for me. Now, what else can the church do? Who else can the church be? Our hearts are so anchored and at rest in the love of God 
that we gladly obey Him, gladly take any mocking we get, confess our own foolishness when we fail, and plead for the mercy of God for those around us that we have already received in Christ ourselves. Praise God that His grace is great enough for every sin. It really is. His grace covers the deepest, darkest shame. And there's probably some in this room that feel deep shame connected with some of the things that have gone on this week. His grace covers your deepest shame. (laughs) It covers your deepest sin. His grace has seen darker days in history and the darkness has not overcome the light. And the darkness will not overcome the light. So as we come to the table this morning to eat and drink with Jesus, (laughs) do our own little Genesis 18, let's remember His grace. His grace that is big enough to keep sanctifying us and moving us toward Him and transforming power and patience until the day we're with Him forever. And His grace that is big enough to save the most radical, rebellious people and places. So as we come to the table, we are pleading for mercy for ourselves. <laughs> Lord, I have so much brokenness in me. <laughs> so much sin left in me. I have so much yuck that I don't even know how to unpack yet. Be merciful to me. Change me. Transform me. Forgive me. I confess it. I'm repenting of it. And we should come this morning pleading for the world outside. God, show them yourself. Change their hearts. Lord, no one can see the kingdom of God until they're born again. They can't see, Lord. Save them. And let's pray that many would be spared the coming judgment for their sin because God moves towards them amazingly through us. In love, and that they would believe and spend eternity with us in his presence. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.church or write us at 720. 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.